Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzen, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our desire at Grace Bible Fellowship is to proclaim the Word of God for the glory of God. At the center of our proclamation is the one who is Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. We base who we are and what we do upon the good news of Jesus. If you would like to know more about this good news or would like to know more about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. That's www.gbfperu.org. I'm glad you've decided to listen to the teaching of the Bible along with us as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. The words to which I would like to draw our attention to this morning can be found in the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. If you would stand with me as we read God's word together. So I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, What happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten, how the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after wind. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, please give me physical strength and spiritual energy to speak your word with faithfulness, clarity, authority, passion, wisdom, humility, and liberty. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. I want you to imagine for a moment your home, the place where you live, uh, your house. Uh, Imagine maybe that main living area where you spend most of your time. And I want you to imagine there in your house, in the middle of your house, is a white rhinoceros. Now, let's just refresh our memories for a moment about a white rhinoceros. 5,000 pounds, 15 feet long, 
six and a half feet tall at its shoulder, and that's what you have there standing in the middle of your house. And now imagine that I told you to try to hide that white rhinoceros. Where would you put him? Where would he go? How would you try to get around having that in your home? And maybe you would give up at the beginning. Maybe you'd say, look, there's no way that I'm going to hide uh, this kind of rhinoceros. And you just give up from the very beginning. Many of us might just throw in the towel quickly. There is no way that we could get it to blend in. And this is the very description that a philosopher by the name of Peter Kreft describes. But in his description, he makes it known that this white rhinoceros represents wretchedness and death. And he says, now imagine trying to hide that white rhinoceros. And how many people, instead of throwing in the towel right away, would go to every effort to try to hide that rhinoceros in their home. And Peter Kraft says that we try to hide that rhinoceros in many different ways, but he says the way that he believes that we try to hide that white rhinoceros is that we put a million mice on the white rhinoceros. That's how we try to forget about it. And his point is this. We fill our lives with multiple diversions. A million mice trying to forget, trying to hide the white rhinoceros. How many of us would try to do that in our own lives? Deceiving ourselves and thinking that we can somehow cheat death. A theologian by the name of Ian Proven says this, Ecclesiastes is a sobering account of the relentless anxiety of the materialist who lives under the shadow of unavoidable death. Solomon, as he is writing this book of Ecclesiastes, has just told us that he filled his life up with pleasure and that filling up his life with pleasure did not get him any closer to finding out the meaning of life. Pleasure could not gain him any advantage in this world. He had filled his life up with it. Unlimited, unrestrained, no holds bar pleasure. But what did he come to the conclusion? What what conclusion did he come to? Pleasure was vanity. It didn't unravel the mysteriousness of life. It was striving after wind. And so Solomon goes back and circles back around to what the world might elevate as the best thing that anyone could have, and he circles back around and he says, wisdom. We've already seen Solomon talk about wisdom. He told us that wisdom was never meant to answer the whys of life, but wisdom was meant to help us navigate the waves of life. That so often we try to misappropriate wisdom and make wisdom do what wisdom was never designed to do. We even think that wisdom will somehow give us an advantage over death. If we're all honest, 
might not this be what we want? An advantage over death? To somehow have an upper hand, to avoid the unavoidable, to escape the inescapable, to outrun the outrunnable. What advantage is wisdom to us? What is it that we think that wisdom is going to be able to give us? Solomon says, don't think that wisdom can do more than it really can. Don't think that wisdom has all of the ultimate solutions to your life. Don't try to make wisdom what wisdom was never meant to be. And yet, in our human mind, we think that there is a cure to death. We think that there is some advantage out there and that if we could just find it, that everything will be okay. Then our deepest, darkest nightmares will be relieved. And how I even find myself sometimes wrestling with this fact. Isn't there just a pill for that? Isn't there just some remedy that we could find? Surely for how far we've come in society, for how far we've come in science, how far advanced we are, that we could put a man on, a moon, on the moon, that we can split the atom, that we can achieve so many medical breakthroughs and nearly eradicate some diseases, and yet still there is no advantage to the real problem that we all face. And it's the problem of death. So what is it that Solomon is going to tell us here? He's going to tell us what it is that wisdom will not give us and one thing that wisdom will give us. So let's look at this text this morning. You can follow along there in your bulletin if that is helpful. Three points. Number one, being wise will not give you an advantage over those who preceded you. Being wise will not give you an advantage over those who preceded you. Solomon and his message in the book of Ecclesiastes would not have gotten very far in our culture today. In fact, we read these verses and you might not have been jumping up and down after you heard those verses. Seems like Solomon is putting a, a dark outlook on life, that he's trying to depress us. We're the culture of self-esteem. We're the culture where we want to ensure that everyone feels good and that we are liked. We live about in a culture where everything is supposed to be encouraging and empowering. We live in a culture where you can do anything and be anything that you want to be. We live in a culture that says, you are special. And Solomon comes in and he pops that bubble in our life that looks so nice. And he says, think again, you're not special. Solomon starts our text again by going to this spectrum of life. You see it here. I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. Remember, that is this spectrum of life that Solomon is looking at. On one end is wisdom, the person who lives with wisdom, the one who is wise. And on the other end of the spectrum of life is that person who is mad and who lives foolishly. And he says, I'm looking at this whole spectrum. I'm considering every way that someone could live. And remember, as Solomon uses these words, madness and folly, particularly, we might think that Solomon is talking about mental deficiency. 
that those people on that side of the spectrum aren't that smart. That maybe if they just had more knowledge, if they were better educated, that then they wouldn't be in that spot of being a fool. But Solomon is not talking about a mental deficiency. Solomon is talking about a moral deficiency. That is people's problem on that side of the spectrum. What really plagues them are choices and decisions that they make that leads them to their ruin because they have a morality problem. And Solomon is searching for answers along this whole spectrum, among the moral and the immoral, and he comes to a realization by asking himself a question. What can a man do who comes after the king? Solomon is here referring to himself. He is the wise king of Israel. The king of Israel who had asked God for wisdom and for understanding to rule and it pleased the Lord so much that Solomon had the most wisdom out of any king that ever ruled or who had ever come before him. He was the king of Israel who had been anointed by God himself and so was in the line of David, this Messiah king who would be God's son as promised in 2 Samuel chapter 7. He was the king of Israel who had done it all. We saw that last week, all of this king's accomplishments, Solomon had done so much, Solomon had so much that we might be tempted to ask, what didn't Solomon do and what didn't Solomon have? Let's think about this question that Solomon asks for a moment. Who is it that Solomon is writing this to? What is the man to do who comes after the king? Who would that question be pertinent to? The king's son. He is the one who's going to come after the king. So it's likely that Solomon here is writing to his own son, Instructing him with these words. Son, what is it that you are going to do when I am gone? You are the next in line. You are in the line of succession. You will be made king after I am gone. What are you going to do after I am gone? What are your aspirations, son? What are your dreams? But what is it Solomon is teaching his son? You can only do what the king has already done. You're not going to do anything new. You're coming after the wisest king who ever lived. Do you think that you are going to be a better king than me? Do you think that you are going to outrule me? Do you think that you're going to be able to do more than what I have done? Do you think that you will surpass me in wisdom? Look at everything that I've done. You can't outrule this king. At best, you will only be able to copy, repeat what I have already done. You're not going to be able to do anything new. There's no new innovative wisdom to rule better than me. You are not going to somehow be special or surpass me. This is what tugs at our heartstrings if we're honest. Because somehow we think that we are going to get ahead. That we are going to surpass those who have come before us. That somehow we're going to make progress And even though the world might be against us, if we just have enough grit and determination, if we just sacrifice enough, if we just put in enough time, if we just really work hard enough, that we will surpass those who preceded us. 
And particularly, we think we will surpass them in having the answers to life and escaping death. And what is it that Solomon tells us? Stop deceiving yourself. We are actually able to see how Solomon's teaching of his son played out. Do you remember the son who succeeded him? His name was Rehoboam. After Solomon died, Rehoboam now was in charge of the kingdom of Israel. And it was then that the people of Israel came to Rehoboam. And they said, your father has made our lives difficult. He's put a burden upon us. Remember all of those works that were done? All of the the vineyards that were planted, all of the gardens and the parks and the houses that were built? Guess who did all that? We did all of that. Now, if you would just make our, our burden lighter. And so Rehoboam goes to his father's advisors and his Father's advisors say to him, listen to the people, lighten their load, work with them, show compassion and kindness to them. Rehoboam, though, had to get a second opinion. (laughs) And so he went to his young friends and they say to him, now is the time to show who you are as a king. (laughs) Now is the time to not lessen their burden." but to show your power and your authority and how great you are and how you are going to surpass your father, the great King Solomon. Whose advice did Rehoboam take? He took his young friend's advice. (laughs) He goes to them and he says to them, you think it was difficult under my father? You think you had a heavy burden with my father? My little pinky finger is thicker than my father's thighs. He disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. That's what we might call Rehoboam's folly. How foolish it was to think he could surpass his own father. He would get somewhere. And what happens? Kingdom of Israel is torn apart in two. You will not find any new, innovative wisdom that will get you ahead in life. You won't do anything or be anything special. Rehoboam should have learned this lesson, but he didn't. And there is no blank space that can be filled that hasn't already been tried to get to the answers of life. Have you come to terms with that? Sometimes we think, if I just did, fill in the blank. If I just had, fill in the blank. What is it that you think in life will get you ahead? And Solomon says, none of that will get you ahead. Would you even ask God to be humbled by that? Yet, how many of us think, I am going to be a better king? 
This is the downfall of man. This is man's sinful nature. This is the worst lie to hold on to because it keeps us deceiving ourselves. You will not be a better king. You cannot be a better king. You are not special. But where does that so often lead you if you believe that? It leads you to disappointment. It leads you to being self-focused, to turn in on self. But the Bible won't allow us to wallow in disappointment because it says to us, You are not a better king, but what you need is a better king. What you need is a king that you could never be on your own. You need a king who is even greater than Solomon. The only king who is truly better, the only king who is greater than Solomon is King Jesus. That is the king who surpasses everyone, who is God's wisdom. And who calls for you to stop trying to make yourself a better king and to submit to him as the best king, the king of glory. And praise God that he does not need any other king to add or to improve to the work that that king has done for us. The work that that king has done is the best work and all the work that you or I will ever need to be made right with God. Number two. Being wise will give you a relative advantage over the fool. Being wise will give you a relative advantage over the fool. This is where Solomon leads us to here as he's considering this whole spectrum of life. There is more gain in wisdom than in folly. That's his conclusion that he comes to. And we understand that. Is there no advantage to being wise? Isn't that what the book of Proverbs is all about? Getting wisdom? We must realize here that what Solomon's saying is that there is a relative advantage. Solomon makes this observation. He knows it to be true. Life is not meaningless in the sense that it doesn't matter what you do or how you live. Looking at the spectrum of life with wisdom on one side and madness and folly on the other, Solomon recognizes that wisdom is better than folly, that there is more to be gained. There is an advantage in being wise as compared to being a fool. So it does matter. It does matter how you live your life. We are those who want to be wise, want to live with wisdom. And he makes this comparison, doesn't he? He says, being wise and being a fool is like light and darkness. There is more advantage in light than there is in darkness. And dads, you know this to be true. Because if you've ever walked through your house in the middle of the night and stepped on a Lego, how something so small could cause so much pain to your bare foot, you know that light is better than darkness. Because if the lights had been on, you wouldn't have stepped on that little Lego. And that's what Solomon is saying here. He's saying the wise person has his eyes in his head. That is, he sees where he is going. He's able to navigate through life. It helps you see. But the one who is a fool is the one who walks in darkness. That is, he is spiritually blind. He doesn't see what is going on. He's not able to understand the ups and downs of life. He's not able to understand the difficulties and hardships. He's not able to understand the trials and tribulations that he meets. 
Wisdom gives you eyes in your head so that you can see clearly and make the choices that you need to make at any given time. This is what the book of Proverbs tells us in Proverbs 4, 18 through 19. But the path of the righteous is like the light of the dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. That is what the fool does. He lives, he walks in darkness. The fool is the one who is spiritually blind. They are unable to navigate through life. But have you ever noticed that that person doesn't think that they're a fool? (laughs) That they, they never come to grips and understanding that they continue to make one bad decision after another only desiring to feed their sinful flesh, only wanting to live for themselves, only wanting to get the praise that they think that they deserve. And so often how the fool thinks he has it all together when he fails to see how blind he really is. It matters where you are on the spectrum of life. It matters whether you are wise or a fool. And there is a relative advantage to being wise, having your eyes in your head, seeing the world clearly, seeing the world the way that God sees the world, against those who live and walk in darkness and spiritual blindness. There is a warning here. You do not want to be the one who walks in darkness. You do not want to be A fool. That is not the good life. That is not advantageous. It matters how you live. But it brings us to number three. Being wise will not give you any advantage over death. Being wise will not give you any advantage over death. Come to a major turning point in the text now. Solomon has just said there is relative advantage to being wise. But now here comes a major contrast. Are you ready for the big contrast? And yet, I looked at the wise man and I looked at the foolish man. And yet, I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. All of them. The same event happens to the wise. Same event happens to the fool and the one who is mad. It happens to everyone no matter where they are on that spectrum of life. Solomon has come to, has come to terms with this in his heart. It's not an easy thing for us to try to believe and reconcile in our own hearts. We struggle with it. We wrestle with it. Sometimes we go so far as to try to not believe it. But the same thing that happens to the fool will also happen to the wise. The same thing that happens to the most foolish person in the kingdom of Israel will also happen to the wisest king who ever ruled over Israel. And what is that event? What is that same event that happens to them both? It's death. Death is the great equalizer. It's death that levels the playing field. 
death is not exclusively for the fool. Death meets both the fool and the wise. Hear what Solomon says, just the same. And Solomon then asks this question, why then have I been so very wise? What use has it been to be exceedingly wise in my life? And there's an underlying problem here in how we often understand wisdom. Again, we think that wisdom will somehow get us to this point where we can escape death. That if we're just wise enough, if we just have enough wisdom, that we can cheat death. And wisdom does not, though, however, make the problem or the certainty of death go away. And this is the underlying thought in Solomon's question. Why have I been so very wise? There's thick irony here because he sees excessive wisdom is what he thought he needed to avoid the problem of death, but that was a completely foolish thought. You have thought that you had enough wisdom that death wouldn't find you. No, death stalks the wise and the foolish and will find them both. You live under the shadow of unavoidable death. And living under the shadow of death brings relentless anxiety to your life. A relentless anxiety that is like a hound chasing you down, corners you, paralyzes you, and ultimately it overtakes you. This is vanity. This is utterly mysterious to us. This goes against the very economy that we have set up in our minds. Do you have this kind of economy set up in your mind? It goes against what we believe about how the world is supposed to work. What is it that we tell ourselves over and over and over again? Good people deserve to live and bad people deserve to die. Wise people live Foolish people die. We are those who deserve to live. That's the category that we put ourselves in, isn't it? We are those who deserve to live, and there are those out there who deserve to die. That's never us. And how prideful are our thoughts when we think this way. Those people deserve to die. Fools deserve to die. The lowest of the low, the scum of the earth, they deserve to die. The boastful, the faithless, the insolent, the envious, those people deserve to die. The malicious, the slandering, the gossipers, the inventors of evil, those persons deserve to die. The pedophile, the sexually immoral, the promiscuous, they deserve to die. The thief, the liar, the hater deserves to die. The bully, the oppressor, the dictator, the murderer who doesn't value human life deserves to die. The addict, the drug user, the loser parents, the freeloaders, the disobedient to parents, the junkie deserves to die, but not me. They deserve the experience of the worst imaginable death, but I deserve life. I deserve to be exempt from death. No, you deserve death and will experience death just like they will. We are brought face to face with the certainty of death. For the wages of sin is death. This is the reality of the fallen and cursed world that we live in. 
You cannot get around this reality. You cannot try to ignore it. It's really there. You will face death. But how often do we try to soften the blow of death? How often we try to get around the finality and the certainty and the inevitability of death by thinking or living like, well, if I'm just remembered. Well, at least there will be a legacy that I will leave behind. Or maybe, even thinking spitefully, they'll miss me when I'm gone. They'll remember me when I'm gone because all the stuff that I do in my life, yeah, they're going to miss me. I want to be remembered. What does Solomon say? No one will be remembered. (laughs) The wise, the fool, what they accomplished, either for the good or in their stupidity, they won't be remembered. It doesn't matter if you've won the Nobel Peace Prize or been on America's Funniest Home Videos you will die, and you will not be remembered. How many millions of people have died in this world? Their life has come to an end, and they have been long forgotten. Would it be some consolation in your life if you think, oh, if I was just remembered, is that what you live for? Is that what you hope for? But when you are dead... Is that what will console you? No. Why? Because you're dead. (laughs) Posthumous fame and reputation is a phantom of life that you cannot and must not hope in. There will be no enduring remembrance of you. You will be long forgotten. The wise will die just like the fool. There's no difference when it comes to death. Both the wise and the fool will stop breathing. Both the wise and the fool will have their hearts stop. Their blood will cease to flow through their veins. Both the wise and the fool will be overtaken by motionlessness in their muscles, which once contracted with such ease Both will undergo decay. There is no escaping it. Get ready. Life is a vapor. It's a mist. It's fleeting. It is here today. It is gone tomorrow. You are about to die. And what happens when that truth confronts you when you have to stare it face to face? What was the result of Solomon when he had to stare death and say, so the wise and the fool will die just the same? He says this, so I hated life. Can he say that? Can the Bible say someone hated life? Well, there is a difference because Solomon is not saying that he hates God, but there is a truth in saying that he hated life because life had lost its sweetness when he was confronted with death. Causes him deep disappointment and distress. Have you ever said that you've hated life? Why was that? Because things were not going the way that you wanted them to go? Because you were going through something difficult or trying? 
because you had a perfect picture of what you thought your life should look like. And what was happening in your life completely destroyed that picture. But why was it that Solomon hated life? He says it here, doesn't he? Because what was done under the sun was grievous to him. We could say it this way. I hated life because the deed that was done under the sun, namely death, was grievous to me. It's this superlative that that Solomon uses here, the deed that is done. This is the deed above all deeds that I have to face. The deed above all deeds that is haunting me, causing me grief and distress and despair. It's the deed that is done under the sun to all mankind and that deed is death. And it caused him distress and misery. He considered it awful. Voltaire has famously said, I hate life, and yet I am afraid to die. Why does the preacher feel this way? He feels this way, and I think he rightly feels this because of what happened in Genesis. In Genesis chapter 2, God gives Adam a command. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. But what happened? Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit, and the consequence promised came about. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Genesis 3.19 Sin entered the world, and with sin, death. And so the world and the whole cosmos was thrown into a cursed and fallen state. Held in the bondage of decay and and corruption. Adam and Eve were now in a state of sin and misery because of their sin. And now everyone who was born is born in Adam and born into the same state of sin and misery. No one can get around those things. And it was this that caused Solomon to grieve. The truth about death. The reality of death caused Solomon to hate life. Because he realized how miserable it was to live in this fallen world with the shadow of death coming upon him and eventually overtaking him. Does the thought of death distress you? Does it bring misery into your heart and mind? Is it grievous to you? There is a reason. There's a reason why the very thought of death brings these feelings into your life. Death is unnatural. This is what grief and misery and distress over death does. It tells you that something is not right. You are supposed to feel that death is the most unnatural event in this world for a reason. But the world tries to downplay this truth. It says death is a natural thing. That death is just a natural process of life. And it's part of the cyclical universe that we live in. But our hearts and our minds just can't get over it. They will not allow us to move on. Death will continue to plague your heart in the middle of the night as you lie awake on your bed and feel the darkness closing in all around you. And it is right to tear you up inside because you are meant to say, death is not right. But still... Man has not been able to cure death. 
or the misery that comes with it. And what might it say about you this morning if you cannot feel what Solomon feels here in these verses? May it be because you've given yourself over to a whole repertoire of distractions. You've covered the white rhino with a million mice. A million mice that divert your attention from the fact that you've got a white rhino in the middle of your house. A million mice, and I don't have the time or the energy to list out all of those mice. It could be a job, family, friends, hobby, traveling, money, sex, entertainment, drink. A million things that distract you from the truth. A million things to occupy your mind and your time and your energy so that the very last thing that you have to think about is death or mortality. And while you've been so distracted, you haven't seen that life in Solomon's respect, is to be hated. If truth be told, you still fear death. What is it that you need this morning? What is it that you need? What is it that I need? What is it that we need? We need someone who has overcome death. You need someone who has conquered death. Here is what you need to hear this morning. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory. How? Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Death does not have the final word. Christ has the final word. Death does not stand over us in victory. But God gives us the victory over death through our Savior. It is in Christ's death and resurrection where our hope lies, that one day we will put off this mortal body and put on that which is imperishable. Death is not the final word. Death is not the end. For the one who is in Christ Jesus, it is not death to die. And we know the death of death in the death of Christ. We know the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And we know that one day we will be at peace, and one day we will finally be in the presence of our God, and one day the curse of this fallen world and the bondage of corruption that holds it captive will be cured, and death will be no more. In fact, it says that death itself will be thrown into the lake of fire. And with such a promise and with such a hope, we can now say with Paul, it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Why? Because for me to live is Christ. To die is gain. Death is gain only for the one who knows Christ Jesus. Who knows him, who trusts in him, who has believed in him. If death is not gain for you today, today is the day 
for Christ's light to shine upon you. Today is the day for Christ to call you. Today is the day to hear the call of the Savior saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Today is the day. If you've never seen that you are a sinner, a rebel against God, For you to recognize and say, yes, I am a sinner. And what I deserve for my sin is death. But the good news is that Jesus has made a way for you to be reconciled to God. Reconciled to God through his son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross to bear the sin of sinners so that they might be forgiven and receive his righteousness. And to see Jesus who not only died on that cross, but was buried, and three days later rose again from the dead, victorious, proclaiming that his death is sufficient to cover all of your sins, and that the price that was required for your sin was paid in full. And now he calls on you to repent, to turn from your sin, to forsake your sin, and to trust in him. Submit to him by confessing him as Lord, and he will save you. Then you will have the light of light. Christian, is this the light that you're walking in, in your life, day by day? And do you have this assurance where you can say, I can look at that rhino in my house. I can look at death and my mortality in the face because I know that for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would work in our hearts. And that we would not be those who've tried to fill up our lives with multiple diversions and distractions. Not trying to escape death or cheat death, but of those who have said, we know this reality. We know this reality, but we know the one who has overcome death that our hope lies in Him. And even though we may die, even though we may breathe our last, that death does not have the final word in our lives. I pray that everyone here this morning would know that, Father. I pray that if there's someone here this morning who doesn't know that, that today they would gain that assurance. They would say, I'm looking to Jesus as the one who's died bearing my sin so that I can be forgiven. And that they would know the gain that even death affords. Lord, we pray that in all of this, you would be honored and glorified. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.